so it's um, worth thinking about the winter's tale after Antony and Cleopatra for lots of reasons. Um, but one of them is the sense in which it's, it's Shakespeare has moved into writing in a very bittersweet mode, both in his tragedies and his comedies. I said at the start of the course, and will repeat now, that the last plays, traditionally the last plays that Shakespeare wrote, he actually had a hand in a couple of plays after The Tempest. But traditionally the last plays that Shakespeare wrote were very hard to categorize when his plays were first published. They were hard to categorize because they were um, both sad and happy, or both happy and sad in very obvious ways. In the 19th century, people started calling them the romances, and that's the standard um, generic category that they're now placed in. And what they all have in common, what the romances all have in common, is that they are to a large extent about father-daughter relations and about a long period of time in which an infant daughter grows up. And the long period of time that these, that these plays either take place over or that they at least refer to is a period of time in which the, there's a shift in generations a period of time in which stuff that in earlier Shakespeare had occurred between plays, so that, for example, um, to recur to Richard II, at the end of Richard II, Bolingbroke is, has become king, and he's the new dynamic young king. At the beginning of Henry IV, part one, which is the next play in the sequence, he has a white beard and white hair, and he is, in, as he puts it in the first line of the play, shaken and wan with care. So that what's happened between Richard II, the end of Richard II, and the beginning of Henry IV, part one, is that we've, um, we're a generation later. Those who had been the commanders of the world, the captains of the universe, um, are now aging and losing power, and those who had been completely under their thumb are now those who are um, the major figures. But in these late plays, Shakespeare is interested in seeing the shift occur within a single play. And so the beginning of Act Four of The Winter's Tale, time comes in as a chorus and says it's now 16 years later and everything that's happened in the first three acts happened 16 years ago. Now we're 16 years later at a time um, when 16 years was really a huge amount of time. Um, demographic studies and sociological studies peg when people started thinking of themselves as having hit old age in Shakespeare's day as 30. That is, 30 was kind of conventionally the psychological beginning of old age. If someone died after the age of 30, it wasn't looked at really as, they, as they're dying young. Of course, you could live to be much longer. We know that Lear died, died um, 
at four score and upwards, not an hour more nor less. Old age could, act, act, could last a very long time. Um, but 30 is essentially the threshold of it's sad but not that sad. Um, 30 is essentially the, well, they lived a good life. Um, that's the threshold of they lived a good life. Um, so 16 years is a long time. It's essentially, and I think um, explicitly, um, the length of Shakespeare's career. That is, The Winter's Tale is a play that he's writing, roughly speaking, and we don't know with um, finer, um, we can't tell with, with much finer um, chronology, um, but roughly speaking, um, the length of time between the first holy Shakespearean plays, the first plays that Shakespeare was writing, um, where he was the single author, or pretty much the single author of the plays, um, and the time that he's writing The Winter's Tale. So that to the extent that what we're doing in this class is to some extent tracing something like a psychobiography of Shakespeare. And we're only doing it very, very lightly um, and very, very generically and um, very, very, you could almost say universally, but to the extent that we're tracing a psychobiography of Shakespeare, um, we're doing it by looking at the kinds of characters that Shakespeare is interested in probing deeply. And to the extent that we're doing that, what we can see is the kinds of characters that Shakespeare is interested in probing deeply um, get older and older. Um, it's not that he's no longer interested in young characters, he is. But as he gets older, he's finding the experience something worth writing about. The experience of what it's like, not just to be 18 or an undergraduate as Hamlet is, but to be someone who is with Phoebus amorous pinches, black and wrinkled deep in time. He's interested no longer only in one's salad days when one, is, one was um, young in judgment, cold in blood, but also what it's like um, at an age that he wasn't very interested in early on. He's not very interested in Gaunt in Richard II. He's not very interested in York. He's interested in the young men who are competing for power. He's interested in Richard and in Bolingbroke. In A Midsummer Night's Dream, he's interested enough in Oberon and Titania and in Theseus and Hippolyta. But on the other hand, they're at the beginning of a time of life that you could call middle age, and he's probably more interested in the young lovers, or to put it another way, um, and this is a way that's also appropriate to um, thinking about Hamlet, and to some extent appropriate to thinking about King Lear, um, he's interested in those figures as parental figures. That is, the experience of being young that he takes on as his subject when he was young is an experience of feeling or failing to feel, caring or not caring um, to take seriously 
the experience of an older generation, a parental generation. For Hamlet, that's very much what Hamlet is about. Does he think much about Claudius, his perhaps real father and at least stepfather? Does he think much about the experience of Gertrude? We can see that Shakespeare is thinking about those things, but possibly we can see that he's starting to think about those things in a way that Hamlet isn't quite, that Hamlet isn't quite able to do so. So now, from this perspective, we can say one more thing about Hamlet, which is that one problem for Hamlet is that he thinks of a father figure as not a real human being, but as a ghost, someone who has rages and resentments and anger and demands. Um, and when he's confronted with parents who are real human beings, that's a really hard choice for Hamlet um, because the kind of fantasy father that the ghost is, um, the figure of rage and dilapidation and revenge and demand, um, that's an easier kind of parental figure to deal with. That's what we're used to dealing with from early childhood. But starting to think of parental-aged people as fully human, that's something that Shakespeare is starting to do in Hamlet and around the time that he's writing Hamlet. Hamlet, in a sense, is a transition from the experience of the world from the point of view of someone who has parents to the experience of the world from the point of view of someone who is the age of parents. You can obviously see that in King Lear, um, where he's interested, in again, in both sides of that equation. But in King Lear, the focus is really going on to the parental side of things. You can see it in Macbeth, where the two people who are the age of parents, although they are not parents, they're the age of parents, they are focused on. There's a way in which you could see the Macbeths as um, Shakespeare writing a kind of young heroes and young heroines play, but transposing it to a generation later, when they're a generation older. Um, another place that you can see this in the psychobiography of Shakespeare um, is that when Shakespeare is writing from the point of view of the young, especially in the tragedies, that tends to be from the point of view of young men. Um, the comedies, not so much. The comedies, um, especially early in Shakespeare's career, the comedies are in some sense always deeper than the tragedies in early Shakespeare. Um, when the tragedies start getting great, what you can see is that Shakespeare is not writing about sons and their parents as much as he starts writing about parents and their daughters. And it helps to know that Shakespeare had a pair of twins, Judith and Hamlet, were the names of his twin children, and Hamlet died at the age of nine. 
Um, and that's um, perhaps not unrelated to um, the play Hamlet. But Judith lived and outlived her father. And um, Shakespeare is very deeply aware, because he's deeply experienced, in the um, experience of being the father of a daughter. And so again, in King Lear, you can see that transition occurring. That is, what you can see is a play which is, from one point of view, from the figure of Hamlet-like characters in Edgar and Edmund, and from another point of view, the experience of a more Shakespeare-like father, that is, the father of a daughter who misunderstands her. And I think we can say safely, because this is a universal human experience, and it's also the experience that Shakespeare wrote about, we can say safely that Shakespeare um, had a strong um, intuition and a strong learning experience of discovering um, all the different ways that he had misunderstood and wronged his own daughter, and all the different ideas and wishes and projections that he made onto her um, that, that he had to learn to overcome. Um, and so one of the really interesting things then about looking at the shape of Shakespeare's literary career is to see, to be able to um, work out the seriousness of this from the bare bones biography that we know, the seriousness of what it means for him to take an interest in what in the sonnets he calls being a decrepit father. That is one of the great sonnets, well, they're all great, um, one of the, but one of the great sonnets begins, it's a sonnet to the young man, um, but it's very interesting to see how he describes himself in that sonnet. The sonnets are roughly contemporaneous with The Winter's Tale, um, and he describes the experience of a decrepit father who takes delight to see his child perform the deeds of youth. And um, so a decrepit father taking, taking delight in what his child does. Um, that's how Shakespeare is thinking of himself at roughly this time. And the sense of de the decrepit fathers that you get in the romances from Leontes to Polixenes to Prospero um, to Pericles, but to Prospero and the Tempest, um, they're interesting. And what's interesting about them is their simultaneous failure and success at understanding their own daughters and understanding that situation. So that's a little bit of a background for why The Winter's Tale is a good play to end this course with um, and how much it's a play about some genuinely bittersweet experience of aging that Shakespeare um, is depicting here because he's feeling it um, as he himself is now readying himself for some kind of, well, to quote Wall Stevens, for forms of farewell. These romances could be regarded as forms of 
farewell. Um, and again, traditionally, The Tempest, as a lot of you will know, is described as Shakespeare's um, leave-taking play. That is, Prospero, the magician, um, abjures his magic. He says he'll no longer do this magic. He buries his book and breaks his staff um, and will no longer be the magician who's produced the pageants and, um, and, um, and images that we've seen. Um, the mask of Ceres, if you know the Tempest. Prospero is not doing that anymore. He's leaving the stage. Um, people no longer like to talk about the Tempest in that way, but it's really hard not to see um, the relevance of that description of the Tempest. Um, but here we're talking about the Winter's Tale, and we're going to begin um, by talking about, the, about Leontes, who is clearly the major figure in the play, um, and clearly Shakespeare giving himself um, a King Lear-like challenge. That is, what we're getting here is a father and a husband who is as bad as Lear, if not worse, as bad as Lear, without the excuse that Lear might have of um, extreme old age and the erraticness of extreme old age. Leontes is not extremely old. Leontes, 23 years earlier, was a boy. Um, Leontes is going to live at least another 16 years after um, the stuff that the play opens with. Um, yes, he's hitting we could call it the era of crotchetiness. You all probably at some point in your life have, have heard the seven ages of man's speech or know the seven ages of man's speech. And um, yeah, he's getting into the later crotchety age, um, but it's not an excuse. And the wrong that Leontes does is astonishing. Um, it causes real and absolute harm and harm that cannot be undone. Um, and yet, somehow, in this play, we are supposed to feel by the end of it, and um, I hope we do feel by the end of it, that it has a happy ending, and that it's a happy ending because it's happy for Leontes. Um, because the tyranny that he's exercised um, because the, the insane violence of his behavior um, has nevertheless, he's repented for it. Nevertheless, somehow or other, he's um, been made to pay for it. Um, made to pay for what can't be paid for. Um, now, one thing to do, and I'm going to try to do this simultaneously as we talk about the play, um, one thing to do is to notice the stagecraft that makes this possible. It's not only the story that makes it possible, but it's the way the story is told. Um, Shakespeare, from the start, has been interested in the way um, real life is like theater and the way theater is like real life. This is, this is a theme in Shakespeare that we've talked about over and over again. Um, public life, presenting yourself in public, politics, and so on, all of that is like 
um, actors at a show. We've talked about this from Richard II onward. Um, Shakespeare is also interested in the psychology of the experience of seeing a play and what that psychology is, the microscopic psychology of the two or three hours or four hours that you spend at a play, what that microscopic psychology might say about the macroscopic stories that are being told in the play. So what I mean by that is The Winter's Tale has a notoriously long scene. That is the scene in Act Four, which some of you um, have gotten to by now and some of you haven't. But it's one of the longest scenes in Shakespeare. Um, the scene, Act Four, Scene Three, which begins um, in the Norton on page 29, 27, and goes on. Well, it, it basically goes on at Act Four, Scene Three, and Act Four, Scene Four make a pair. Um, it's actually Act 4, Scene 4, which is the long one, but they do make a pair, and as a pair, they go on all the way to um, 29.49. So we're talking, if you put the two scenes together, we're talking 22 pages. If you only look at Act 4, um, Scene 4, we're looking at 810 lines. Um, 810 lines is, a, that's a scene that's roughly speaking a quarter of the whole, or no, excuse me, a third of the whole play um, in a single scene. And um, when The Winter's Tale is performed, that scene is usually cut to ribbons. Um, that scene is usually cut, probably about half of it is cut in most productions of The Winter's Tale. Not, that is not that half is taken out right from the middle, but that um, enough cutting is done that, it, that it's brought down to about half its length. Um, but it's worth asking why this endless scene. Um, I don't think it's endless. It doesn't feel endless if done right. It's not, it shouldn't be boring to you. Um, but why this endlessly long scene in this play? What's the micro psychology of that scene? Um, what does it do to an audience? to have a scene that goes on for 810 lines, for, to have a scene that probably would take in, on the modern stage about an hour to play. Um, why half this hour long really interstices? Not very much happens in that scene. Yeah, some stuff happens. It's essential to the plot. It's not only an incidental scene. But what happens isn't very much. Um, but Shakespeare um, is doing something important in that scene to the psychology of the audience um, and to our own experience of time in the theater. That's something to be thinking about. Um, the second half of the play, which is what we'll talk about Friday, um, is essentially introduced with the finding of Perdita and the death of Antigonus. Um, so what happens, you will recall, I hope, is that um, the shepherd and his son in the Norton called the Clown um, come in and um, they see Antigonus. This is in the Norton 
Um, this is on page 29, um, 24, um, Act 3, Scene 3. Um, Antigonus, in the most famous stage direction in Shakespeare, exits pursued by a bear. Um, it's worth the price of the Norton maybe to read their little footnote about that, which is, was it a real bear that pursued him on the Jacobean stage? Um, then the shepherd comes in and um, he sees the baby um, and um, he's amazed by this. And then his son comes in and says he's seen the death of Antigonus. Um, and the shepherd, um, um, and he describes everything that he's, that he's seen, the bear mocking Antigonus, the gentleman roared, um, everyone dead. Um, and then um, the shepherd has the very crucial line. This is at line 103, page 2925. Heavy matters, heavy matters, but look thee here, boy, now bless thyself. Thou met'st with things dying, I with things newborn. Um, so that's the transition in the play. The first half ends with the death of things, and the second half begins with the birth of things. Thou met'st with things dying, and I with things newborn, that newborn thing being Perdita. Um, and notice that it's the old shepherd who says that. Um, that is, if you want to know who Shakespeare might have played in this play, um, which is always an interesting question to ask, um, he might well have played the old shepherd. I don't know that there's, there's some evidence for, for um, characters that Shakespeare actually did play. He did play the ghost in Hamlet, in the first production of Hamlet. Um, he played uh, the prince um, and the chorus in Romeo and Juliet. I don't think there's any evidence for whether he played the shepherd, um, but I think it would make sense that he did. Um, so let's go to the beginning of the play. Um, we'll notice that it begins, as so many of these Shakespearean plays begins with begin with conversation. Um, here, between um, introducing us to Camillo, who's going to be an important character, um, and Archidamus, who isn't. Um, and they're talking about the relationship between Leontes and Polixenes and how much they like each other and so on. And then we get the introduction of the two characters um, who uh, Archidamus and Camillo have just talked about. And Polixenes says it's time for him to leave. Um, Leontes says, no, you should stay some longer. Polixenes says, no. I really have to go. Um, and then Hermione um, comes in and intervenes and gets Polixenes to stay, which is what starts all the trouble. Um, what Hermione, just to again see a little bit about Shakespeare's stagecraft, what Hermione says is he can go, this is at um, Act 1, Scene 2, page 2894, um, he can go if he says that he's going to see his son, if that's what really matters to him. 
Um, so Leontes at line 27, tongue-tied our queen, speak you. Um, a little bit of an echo of King Lear there, I think, that Shakespeare is thinking of Lear talking to Cordelia. Um, tongue-tied our queen, speak you. And Hermione does speak. I had thought, sir, to have held my peace until you had drawn oaths from him not to stay. You, sir, charge him too coldly. Tell him you are sure all in Bohemia as well. This satisfaction the bygone day proclaimed. That is, they just got news that everything was fine in Bohemia. Say this to him. He's beat from his best ward. Well said, Hermione. To tell he longs to see his son were strong. But let him say so then and let him go. But let him swear so and he shall not stay. We'll thwack him hence with distaffs. So there is a good reason that he could go, which is to go see his son. But then that reason gets dropped. He agrees to stay for a little bit longer. And Hermione is pleased. Hermione says, you can say either as my prisoner or my guest at line 57. Um, you really will be one of them, either my prisoner or my guest. And Polixenes responds, your guest then, madam, to be your prisoner would import offending, which is for me less easy to commit than you to punish. So I could never offend you. I would never be your prisoner. If I have to stay, I'll stay as your guest. Um, here again, Shakespeare is just suggesting what prison is going to mean. Um, and it's Hermione, of course, who's going to be the prisoner. And Hermione here, though, isn't. Hermione then says, not your jailer then, but your kind hostess. So that's great. Come, I'll question you of my lord's tricks and yours when you were boys. You were pretty lordings then. So why is she so interested um, in, what they, in what they were like as little boys? Um, it's a standard kind of thing to see that people are interested in the childhoods of their significant others. But in this play, this is also in the context of her saying, if you want to say you're going to see your son, then you should go right away. Um, and then we are about to see her interacting with Mamilius. Mamilius, who gives the play its title, because it's Mamilius who will say, a sad tale's best for winter. Um, Mamilius is the boy who will die, um, the boy who, um, um, whose death is guaranteed by Leontes's behavior. Um, and Mamilius is what there will never, will never be repaired in this play. When Mamilius dies, he dies for good. And his death is what prevents this play from ever turning simply into a comedy. Um, the costs in this play are tremendous, and Shakespeare is indicating how tremendous those costs are right here. Um, those costs are not only tremendous in terms of human life, but they're also, that is, it's not only, oh no, someone we really liked died, someone they really liked died, um, but those are also are costs that are going to um, be felt throughout the play. So let me just quickly um, alert you to this as um, something to think about as you read the second part of the play. Um, the clear and obvious doubling in this play, it's a King Lear-like doubling, is Mamilius and Perdita. That is, Mamilius dies, 
at the end of the first part of the play that's part of the climax of the winter's tale part one the winter part of the winter's tale since the second part of the play is the spring part um, Mamilius dies um, in the winter part of the winter's tale just as Hermione does Mamilius returns in the spring part of the play as Perdita just as the fool and Cordelia are played by the same boy. Um, Mamilius and Perdita are played by the same boy. But Perdita is substantially older than Mamilius. That is, Mamilius is not 16. Um, he's probably about seven. Um, and so part of the nested time sequences that are going on in the course of this play um, part of the different periods of time that Shakespeare is asking you to think about in the course of this play is the difference in age between Mamilius when he exits at the end of the first part of the play, let's say at age seven, and his return, or the boy's return as Perdita in the second part of the play at age 16. That is, there's um, schematically, there's not only the 23 years that pass, or if you think about schematic periods of time in this play, um, there are different amounts of time in this play that pass between boyhood and adulthood. There's 23 years between the time when Polixenes and Leontes were boys to what they are now. There's 16 years that passes between Perdita's infancy and her adolescence, which is what happens between Act 3 and Act 4 of the play. Um, but there's also, you could say, nine years of acting time that passes between what the boy playing Mamilius has to perform in the first half of the play, a seven-year-old, and what the boy playing Mamilius has to perform in the second half of the play, a 16-year-old. So to the extent that we recognize the same actor, and we should, to the extent that we recognize the same actor, um, in the first half of the play and the second, we should feel, well, we missed nine years of his life. That is, we missed 16 years of Perdita's life, but we also missed nine years of that boy's life. We've seen him exit as a seven-year-old and return as a 16-year-old. Um, and that idea um, that this much time has passed is, again, part of the kind of um, overlap, the kind of um, overlay of different time periods that this play is trying to get us to think about simultaneously. So now Hermione is interested in the boyhood of Leontes and Polixenes, but of Leontes especially, because Mamilius is so like him to think about Leontes as a boy 
is a way to think about Mamilius. To think about Mamilius is a way to think about Leontes as a boy. Um, so I'll question you of my lord's tricks and yours when you were boys. You were pretty lordings then, she says. And Polixenes replies, we were fair queen, two lads that thought there was no more behind but such a day tomorrow as today, and to be boy eternal. So the experience of boyhood is to think that being a boy is an eternal condition. Um, the experience of childhood is to think that to be a child is eternal. Um, and it's not true. And they, at the start of the play, already know that it's not true. Hermione was not my lord, the verier wag of the two. And Polixene says, no, we were exactly the same. We were as twinned lambs that did frisk in the sun and bleat the one at the other. What we changed was innocence for innocence. Um, all our play was innocence changing for innocence. We knew not the doctrine of ill-doing, nor dreamed that any did. Had we pursued that life, and our weak spirits ne'er been higher reared with stronger blood, we should have answered heaven boldly, not guilty. The imposition cleared hereditary hours. So if we'd stayed boys forever, if we hadn't hit adolescence, if, we, if sexual desire had not come upon us, we would have gone to heaven as pure innocence. Um, again, this will probably help a little bit. It's another marker that Shakespeare is putting down, which will probably help a little bit with Mamilius's death. That is, that Mamilius dies before he turns into someone with adult in an adult world in which there is adult wrongdoing and adult sin and adult sexual jealousy, because sexual desire and sexual jealousy go together, um, and adult self-dealing. Um, by this we gather, Hermione teases him, you have tripped since. Um, that is, you have since fallen into hereditary sin, into original sin, which is what he's talking about. Um, and Polixenes agrees. Oh, my most sacred lady, temptations have since then been to us. For in those unfledged days was my wife a girl. Your precious self had then not crossed the eyes of my young playfellow. So, yeah, um, we then met the people we would marry, and um, that's what broke us apart because we got interested in women. Um, Grace to boot, she says, of this make no conclusion unless you say your queen and I are devils. Um, yet go on, the offenses we have made you do will answer if you first sinned with us, and that with us you did continue fault, and that you slipped not with any but with us. So if you were always, um, if the only sexual sin that you ever committed was with the women that you married, then that's okay. Um, that's fine. And it's at that point where real adult anguish comes in. Leontes is surprised that um, Polixenes is staying. Is he one yet? He'll stay, my lord, says Hermione. And then Leontes is bitter. At my request, he would not. And what you should notice, that's the moment that suspicion enters into Leontes's mind. At my request, he would not. He stayed when you asked, but he didn't stay when I asked.
Now, what we should notice here is that there are two ways of understanding what's happening here. Um, and the um, two ways of understanding it are going to be present for the rest of the play. Um, one is, so, he's interested in you, and he's going to stay because you asked him to and because he has the hots for you. The other is he wasn't sufficiently loyal to me, interested in my desire that he stay. That didn't matter enough to him. I wanted him to stay, and he didn't. He doesn't care about me as much as he once did. Um, now, Leontes probably doesn't know which of these is preponderant in his mind at this point. But what is happening here is that he is feeling a certain, feeling very vividly a certain break between what he was with Polixenes as a boy and what's happening now. That is, Polixenes will do things for people not for him. Now, all of Shakespeare's earlier comedies are the kind of converse moment of what's going on here, which is that it's standard in an earlier comedy of Shakespeare's, that women characters care more about each other than about the somewhat cruder and, and less subtle and less deep-thinking men who seek to woo them. Um, the closest thing, though, that you might see to, to something that's going on here is, is Merchant of Venice, where what Portia has to do in Merchant of Venice is break a bond between Bassanio and Antonio and essentially convert Bassanio to heterosexuality. Um, something like that, but in a very odd variation, is happening here. And the odd variation is the conversion to heterosexuality has occurred, but now Leontes is sort of re-experiencing it as a Portia-type figure which is what Hermione is. Pauline is going to be the real Portia-like figure, um, but Hermione is already a Portia-like figure. A Portia-like figure convinces a man to do something that he might not otherwise have done. Now, notice what she convinces him to do is to stay with his friend, not to leave. Convinces Polixenes to stay with Leontes, unlike Portia convincing Bassanio to turn away from Antonio. Um, but it's still the case that what he was unable to do was something like what Antonio was able to do with Bassanio, to get him to come to Venice, to give up his marriage, to come to the man he really loved and who really loved him. Here, that same thing Leontes is unable to do, but Hermione makes it possible. Hermione does it. And so when he says, at my request, he would not, think of that 
as a little bit of an Antonio moment. He's lost. There's something that he's lost. It's very trivial what he's lost, but there's something that he's lost. What happens to that loss? It turns into a completely, um, you could say, legitimate sexual passion, which is that of jealousy. Um, that is, he thinks and plays up and probably is um, jealous of Hermione. He thinks and plays up his belief that Polixenes and Hermione are interested in each other. Um, but it's not their interest in each other that matters to him quite as much as the fact that she succeeded where he failed. And it's not quite Hermione's defection that is bothering him, or that's not the whole story, what he believes is her cheating on him. It's the evidence that he now has that, that there's a way in which Polixenes is cheating on his friendship, is doing something for Hermione that he wouldn't do for Leontes. Um, so, but Leontes quickly recovers himself. Hermione, my dearest, thou never spokes to better purpose. Never? Never but once. What, have I twice said well? What was it before? I prithee, tell me. Um, and Leontes says, well, the other time you did this is when you said you would marry him. Then didst thou utter at line 107, I am yours forever. Um, and Hermione says very beautifully and rightly, "'Tis grace indeed, why, lo, you know, I've spoken to the purpose twice, the one forever earned a royal husband, the other for some while a friend." So those are the two times that you're praising me for speaking, and in both of those, she's wrong. Um, he's about to um, treat her unbelievably badly. Um, and then we get his first great soliloquy, this crabbed, bitter speech of jealousy. Too hot, too hot. To mingle friendship far is mingling bloods. I have tremor cordis on me. My heart dances, but not for joy, not joy. Um, this is a good actor um, loves this speech of um, of crazy jealousy. Um, I saw Simon Russell Beale do this at BAM. Did anyone see that, um, his version of The Winter's Tale? Um, he was spectacularly great. Um, if it's ever um, shown on video, you should see it. Um, but he did this, he, well, he did the whole part amazingly. He did this speech amazingly. Um, not for joy, not joy. Notice all the repetitions, the kind of staccato spitting out of repetition here. Um, too hot, too hot. Not My heart dances, but not for joy, not joy. This entertainment may a free face put on, derive a liberty from hardiness, from bounty, fertile bosom, and well become the agent. It may I grant, but to be paddling palms and pinching fingers as now they are, and making practice smiles as in a looking glass, and then to size toward the more to the deer. Oh, that is is entertainment my bosom likes not, nor my brows, because his brows are going to sprout cuckold horns. And then he turns to his son. Mamilius, art thou my boy? Um, a very scary question. 
um, because suddenly it looks like he may be suspecting Mamilius of not being his son either. Um, remember that Hermione is pregnant. Um, she's about to give birth. Can someone grab, a do grab the door? Um, thank you. Um, she's about to give birth, and um, Polixenes has been there for nine months. Um, that's the first thing that's established about him, is he's been there for nine months. Now Hermione's about to give birth, and Leontes is going to assume that Polixenes is the father. Um, now, even before that, he's raising the question of whether a father can know that a child is his. This is the oldest question in the book. It comes out um, in the famous saying, it's a wise child that knows his own father. That is, children can never be sure who their fathers are. We can now through DNA, um, but only recently. Um, blood typing helped, and then DNA made it more or less definite. Um, but the Latin saying um, is, um, <laughs> the Latinists look up, um, um, pater semper in curtis est, said mater est certissima, which means, yeah. Yeah, what? Yeah, the father is always uncertain, but the mother is absolutely certain. Um, so you never know who the father of a child is. The father is always uncertain, but the mother is most certain. Um, so there's never a question, except in cheesy dramas about kids separated at, at, in, in um, hospital nurseries, um, there's never a question as to who the mother is. Um, but the father can never be known. Um, in Shakespeare, um, that's an anxiety that many, many male figures, many fathers have in Shakespeare. Are they really the father? Um, it's an anxiety which is usually not a very serious one. That is, the question, am I really the father of this child, will come up often as a joke. Um, that is a way that Falstaff makes fun of Hal is he pretends to um, be, he imitates Hal's father and says, well, I think you're my son um, because your mother's virtue, but chiefly a certain nether hanging of the lip and a tick in your eye warrants me. That is, there's a resemblance um, between you and me, which makes me think that you're my son, or even if I wish I, even if I wish you weren't, that's a moment in Henry the Fourth, Part One. Lear, you will remember, says to Regan when she says, "I'm glad to see you." Lear says, "Regan, I think thou art. I have full reason to know why I should think so. If you weren't, I would divorce me from thy mother's tomb." sepulchering an adulteress. That is, I would have to assume that I was not your father if you weren't glad to see me. Um, in Titus Andronicus, that difficult to read play, um, the one huge danger um, is that the father of the baby in that play, um, whose name is Aaron, is black. 
um, and the supposed father is white and the mother is white. And when the baby is born, the mother knows that her husband is going to know it's not his. Um, that's the one moment in Shakespeare. Um, really, I think the only moment in Shakespeare where it turns out that a person who thinks he's the father of a child is not. Um, that otherwise doesn't happen in Shakespeare. Um, it's fathers are always suspicious, but that suspicion is never warranted. And it's certainly not warranted here. But here we get a little um, ping of anxiety, which is, uh, Mamilius, art thou my boy? He asks in a context where he's already jealous of what's going on between Polixenes and Hermione. I, my good lord, says Mamilius. Um, everything Mamilius says is true. Um, so that's all we need to know. I, my good lord, infects. Why, that's my ballcock. He's playing with him. Um, and he says, what has smutched thy nose? Um, they say it is a copy out of mine. That is, so here's your nose. It got a little bit dirty um, in some way. He wipes his nose. Then he says, they say it is a copy out of mine. Um, come, captain, we must be neat. Not neat, but cleanly, captain. So what you're getting here, again, really hard to act, um, but the full range of this should be acted, is you're getting a father who's engaged in affectionate um, roughhousing with his son, um, but is also distracted by his thoughts, and he's distracted by thoughts about whether this son is really his. So we must be neat, not neat. That is not like cattle who have horns. Um, everyone knows that neat means cattle. Like, have you ever heard of neat's foot oil? Um, so neat is a term for cattle, it still is. Not neat, but cleanly, captain. And yet the steer, the heifer, and the calf are all called neat still virginaling upon his palm. How now, you wanton calf? Art thou my calf? Yes, if you will, my lord. Um, so again, it's, a, it's are you my calf means something like, um, are, you my, are you my big bear? Or are, you my, um, are you my fierce tiger? Um, but it's also, are you my calf? Whose calf are you? Are you my calf? Yes, if you will, my lord, that is, I'll be a calf for you, and I certainly am yours. And he's already said that their two noses are alike. They say it is a copy out of mine. Um, Leontes has already said that. Are you my calf? Yes, if you will, my lord. And Leontes says, well, I'm old and hairy. Thou wantst, I am an hairy man. Thou wantst a rough pash, and the shoots that I have to be full like me. Yet they say we are almost as alike as, like as eggs. Women say so, that we'll say anything. So suddenly his suspicion is not only on Hermione, but he's got a paranoid suspicion of all women. They will say anything in order to convince me that you are my son. Women say we're very much alike, but that means nothing. They're all in conspiracy with each other. So he's taken another giant step towards insanity and jealousy. Women say so, they will say anything. But were they false as or dyed blacks, as wind, as water, false as dice are to be wished by one that fixes no born twixt his and mine? Um, again, notice that what he's doing is he's using a simile um, where women as false as, as loaded dice 
would be wished to be by someone who believed that he owned whatever was mine. So the simile kind of um, uh, um, spirals back to the thing that it's a simile for because it's um, Polixenes, he believes, who makes no born between what's his and Leontes's. Um, yet were it true to say this boy were like me. So he says, it doesn't matter what women say. I can actually see that you're my son. Um, and that's a saving moment on his part. We're being um, toggled back and forth, whipped back and forth, between seeing him as just purely insane and seeing some hope for him. No matter what women say, the truth is you really are like me. Comes her page, look at me with your welkin eye, sweet villain, most dearest, my call-up. Can thy damn, may it be? So there's his wonderful son. Can it be possible that his mother, and he, he's completely baffled, affection, thy attention, stab, thy intention stabs the center, that us make possible things not so held. That is, love can do anything can cause anyone to cheat on someone else. Communicates with dreams. How can this be? With what's unreal, that coactive art and fellowest nothing. Then tis very credent thou mayest conjoin with something, and thou dost, and that beyond commission, and I find it, and that to the infection of my brains and hardening of my brows. Now, notice that the proof that he's giving to himself is, any, could it be? Essentially, the logic of this, of this here is something like this. Could it be that she's sleeping with Polixenes? I can imagine anything. That thought might be insane, but I can certainly imagine it. Why am I imagining it? Because emotional life can do this to the mind. Because we're not in control of our emotions, and we can snap insane in all sorts of emotional beliefs and ideas. But if I can do this, if I can have this idea based on nothing, just think of the ideas she might have based on him. He's actually there. And so if I can imagine this, she could go a lot further and actually do it. And I'm sure she is. Um, so the very argument for the idea that he's making this all up is also an argument for the idea that she might do the same thing and really do it. Um, and Polixenes and Hermione now see that he's a little bit unsettled. Um, and they question him about it, and Leontes then remembers, or answers by remembering his childhood. No, are you moved, my lord, says Hermione, who knows him best. No, in good earnest, he says, how sometimes nature will betray its folly, its tenderness, and make itself a pastime to hard, harder bosoms. Looking on the lines of my boy's face, methoughts I did recoil 23 years and saw myself unbreached in my green velvet coat, my dagger muzzled, um, lest it should bite its master. Um, there's an obscene pun there, as you no doubt noticed. Um, and so prove, as ornament oft does, too dangerous. How like methought I then was to this colonel, this squash, this gentleman, mine honest friend, will you take eggs for money? No, my good lord, I'll fight. Here you should think by the way of, of young Macduff. Um, you will, why happy man's be as dull? My brother, 
Are you so fond of your young prince as we do seem to be of ours? And then Polixenes has this great speech. All of this is setting up what's owed to children, reminding us of what the care that the adults should be taking of these children. Polixenes, who is going to be a jerk 16 years from now, to his own son, Florizel, now says, if at home, sir, he's all my exercise, my mirth, my matter, now my sworn friend and then mine enemy, my parasite, my soldier, statesman, all. He makes a July's day short as December and with his varying childness cures in me thoughts that would thick my blood. So here we know of these adults that they have thoughts which would thick the blood. And the cure for that is they're remembering their own boyhoods and they're looking at their own sons with varying childness. He does cure in me thoughts that would thick my blood. And Leontes says, again, truly, so stands this squire officed with me. He can do this also. Um, and then when he's left alone, he, gets, he has this terrible soliloquy, gone already, inch thick. Notice again the spat monosyllables. Too hot, too hot. Now we get inch thick, knee deep, or head and ears a forked one. Go, playboy, play. That's pretty scary and should be. Go, playboy, play. Thy mother plays, I know. Thy mother plays, and I play too, but so disgraced a part whose issue will hiss me to my grave. Contempt and clamor will be my knell. Go, playboy, play. Notice that what he's saying now is, I'm playing a part also, the cuckolded husband who doesn't know. But the result of this, the issue, that is um, the consequence, but also the child, honest madam's issue, as Hamlet has put it, will hiss me to my grave. And again, this is such an actor's role. It's issue will hiss me to my grave. Just get the hissing in his language there. There have been, or I much deceived, cuckolds ear now, and many men there is, even at this present now, while I speak this, holds his wife by the arm that little thinks she has been sluiced in his absence and is pawn fished by his next neighbor, by Sir Smile, his neighbor. Um, just hear the hissing there. Um, so there, there are people in the audience who are listening, him, listening to him say this, and they're either there with their wives, um, little thinking of what's her smile their neighbor has done, or they're not, which should make them wonder where their wives are. And then Mamilius intervenes, I am like you, they say. Um, Mamilius is a little bit like the fool. Um, that is, he's not, he doesn't have the teasing um, uh, put-downs that the fool does, but he's otherworldly like the fool, and he knows what to say. Um, and it's not because he understands what to say, it's because he knows what to say. I am like you, they say. Um, 
Let's um, go forward now. So we know what Polixenes, what Leontes will do. He will try to have Polixenes killed. No one will believe him. Um, and what we then have, um, which is, again, a, um, an important bit of technique on Shakespeare's part, is that we have Leontes set up as a kind of, to use a Shakespearean name, a kind of touchstone of other people's characters. That is, Leontes has, is now tyrannically claiming something insane. And the way people respond to this claim will tell you what they're like as characters. And we get a, a differential kind of response. Everyone thinks he's insane. No one believes what he's saying. But the person who comes closest to believing what he's saying is Antigonus. Um, and Antigonus, therefore, is the other character in the play who has to die. That is, thou metst with things dying. That dying thing is Antigonus. I with things newborn, Perdita. Um, but the two figures who die in the play are Antigonus and Amelius. Um, and they die on the basis, one as punishment and the other in reaction to the, de the, um, the accusation that Leontes makes. Um, the third one who dies, Hermione, dies on the accusation against her, but not, she's obviously not being judged on whether she believes Leontes or not. Her reaction to Leontes makes a difference. Um, but the question, does she believe the accusation or not, can't come up for her um, because she knows she's been faithful. Um, so Camillo takes off, um, tells Polixenes what's going on. He does the right thing and takes off with Polixenes. Um, and this leaves Hermione in trouble. Um, then go to Act 2, Scene 1. This is page 2905. Um, and I call your attention to another amazing touch on Shakespeare's part. Um, I repeat, maybe for the last time this semester, but I repeat that one of the things that Shakespeare did was what um, lots of very great representational artists do to form the history of representational art, which is that he saw things that everyone knew but no one had ever before thought to put within representation. That is, the history of art is the history of noticing stuff and then putting it into the representation or imitation of life that you're doing in art. When people started learning to see perspectively, they started painting perspectively. That is when they noticed that you could see in three dimensions and that those three dimensions could um, uh, form a certain um, depth within what you were seeing, people started painting perspectively. When people started putting dogs into cathedrals in Flemish painting, for example, because there were dogs in cathedral. When they started putting flies on fruit in still lifes, because there were flies on fruit in still lifes. 
um, that was all painters seeing things that everyone saw, but seeing that they could put them into the representation of the things that they saw. So Shakespeare does that over and over again in this play. In Act Two, Scene One, the very beginning is just that kind of a touch. Enter Hermione, Mamilius, and ladies. And Hermione says, take the boy to you. He so troubles me, tis past enduring. Um, and that's essentially, Mamilius has been nagging her. She's um, on the verge of giving birth. Um, and here's Mamilius nagging her. Um, and um, she just needs a break. She snaps just for a moment. And so the ladies talk to him. Um, and Mamilius hangs out with them. Um, and Mamilius um, teases them, and they tease him. And we find out that she's about to, there's about to be a fine new prince one of these days, says the first lady, wrongly, because Perdita is a girl. Um, and then Hermione says at line 22, what wisdom stirs amongst you? That is, what are you gossiping about? And then to Mamilius, come, sir, now I am for you again. Pray you sit by us and tell us a tale. Now, that moment when she's gotten her break and then she's ready for him again, that's just great. What else can I say about it? There's nothing to analyze there. It's just something you should notice how great it is that Shakespeare saw that mother-child interaction and put it into a play. That is, she's vexed for a moment, but she loves him, and so she goes back to him. And it takes 22 lines, and he's okay. And then she says, here I am, slightly apologetic. Now I'm for you again. Um, and then she says, in fact, now I'll play with you. Tell me a story. Pray you sit by us and tell us a tale. Merry or sad shall it be? As merry as you will. And Mamilius, vexing as he is, says, okay, a sad tale. A sad tale's best for winter. I have one of sprites and goblins. Okay, so there's going to be a ghost, we now know, in the play. Sprites and goblins. Not hard to see who the goblin is. It's Leontes. Um, sprites mean ghosts. Um, spirits. It will be one of sprites and goblins. Let's have that, good sir. Come on, sit down. Come on and do your best to fright me with your sprites. You're powerful at it. There was a man. Nay, come sit down then on. Mamilius begins his tale. There was a man dwelt by a churchyard. So who is that man who dwells by a churchyard? What's a churchyard, do people know? A graveyard. Yeah, it's important to know that it's a graveyard. So who is the man who will dwell by a graveyard for the second half of the play? Leontes, who will go to Hermione's grave every day. Um, so there was a man dwelt by a churchyard. No, let me whisper it in your ear. Yon crickets shall not hear it. Um, come on then, says Hermione, and give it in mine ear. Some vague reference there to Hamlet and what gets delivered through the ear. So he begins whispering the tale, and who comes in? Leontes. Um, so that's the beginning of Mamilius's tale, is the entry of Leontes. Um, Leontes then explodes at Hermione. Um, he knows he's right. Why? Because Polixenes has, um, has um, taken off. Um, 
and Leontes has this these two pages, these um, hundred lines of invective and rage, um, and um, sends Hermione to prison. Um, she asks for help. She says to her women, do not weep, good fools. We're at line 120 now. There is no cause. When you shall know your mistress has deserved prison, then abound in tears as I come out. This action I now go on is for my better grace. That is, um, it will be, in some sense, will bring grace to her. Grace is a word she uses a lot. Um, she's used it before when she talks about the two times that she's talked to the purpose. This action I go on is for my better grace. And then she has, again, another great line that should completely undo Leontes. Adieu, my lord. I never wished to see you sorry. Now I trust I shall. So I never wanted you to regret anything, but now I think I will see you sorry. I trust that, I, that you'll see that you were wrong. Now I trust I shall. My women, come, you have leave. And Leontes um, gets rid of them. Um, Leontes then sends to the Delphic Oracle for the truth of the matter. This is the beginning of a false ending on the play's part. That is what we, the audience, are now encouraged to think is, okay, he'll send to the Delphic Oracle. The Delphic Oracle will tell him the truth. Perhaps, as the Oracle is wont to do, the Oracle will say something misleading, and he'll be a fool a little bit longer. But the Oracle will certainly solve the matter. Um, and there won't be that much more to do after that. Um, that turns out not to be true in any way. Um, he sends for the Delphic Oracle, and the Delphic Oracle does solve things, but a beat too late. Um, so Polina comes into the prison. That's She's introduced to Act 2, Scene 2. Um, Polina comes in, um, demands to see... Um, Hermione and um, uh, Leontes is let, I, w I want us to get to um, uh, I don't think we're going to get to the end of the first half but I, but I want to rush us through a little bit now um, Leontes hears that Mamilius is ill um, and Leontes has an idea of where Mamilius's illness comes from um, to see his nobleness conceiving the dishonor of his mother, he straight declined, drooped, took it deeply, fastened and fixed the shame on it in himself, threw off his spirit, his appetite, his sleep, and downright languished. Leave me solely, go see how he fares. Um, and what he's doing, notice, is he's seeing Mamilius's decline as like the fool pining away. Um, and when Cordelia is banished. Here again, Mamilius is, put, is made a little bit like the fool. Then Paulina comes in with the baby, um, and Paulina tries to get him to um, change his mind when he sees the infant. Um, and what should make him change his mind doesn't. But he, he rounds on Antigonus 
and said, I knew she would come. I told you not to let Paulina come. I knew she would. Um, and the fact, I guess let's end with this, the fact that Leontes had charged Antigonus not to let Paulina in, but that Paulina insisted on coming in, and that Leontes knew that that would happen, is the first step, or maybe the second step, in his rehabilitation. That is, what we can say about Leontes is he goes wrong by insane misunderstanding of others. And what we can also say about him is the only hopeful part of him is the extent to which that insanity is not total and that he actually does understand others. He partly, he loves Mamilius, which is a, which is a start. He partly understands why Mamilius is ill, which is a start. Why Mamilius is pining away for his mother, which is a start. And he partly understands that Paulina is right. And he doesn't punish her for what she does. Everyone else is frightened by Paulina's guts. But she was right to have those guts, a little bit like Esther going to see Ahasuerus. She's right to have those guts. And partly, that shows what a great character she is, her response to his tyranny. But it also shows him accepting what she's saying. He says, if I were a tyrant, you'd be dead. And that's right. If you were a tyrant, she would be dead. There's still some hope there. And that's what we'll talk about on Friday.